Dignity. Security. Freedom. Freedom. Respect. Justice. 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 Equality. Equality. Remedy. Succession. Fairness. Fairness. Good afternoon to all of our listeners on CJTR Community Radio at 91.3 FM and over the internet at cjtr.ca. We can also be heard on SaskTel Max at channel 806 and Access Communications Digital Service at channel 700. Wherever you are, welcome to Human Rights Radio, hosted weekly by Amnesty International Volunteers. Our theme song is titled... 30 Words, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, written and performed by REM and a collection of musicians from around the world. I'm Jim Hutchings, and with me today are my co-hosts, Daylene Sliz and Gord Barnes, and our special guest, John Doherty, director of the important international documentary film, Flynn Flan Flam. Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> don't, don't everybody talk at once. Flin flon, flin flam. I think you flin, missed a flim. Oh, I missed a flim? A flim or a flam. Okay, let me try that somewhere. again. Flin flon, flin, flim flam. Say that fast, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> we usually have trouble with Jim and, and titles uh, and names. And names and, <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, so, that's a particularly tricky one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still in training. I'm and still it's, in it's a very memorable title, so no one's going to forget that. So before we get started with our discussion, I just want to talk a little bit about John because, you know, he's a, he's a hack. You know, he's a, a, a schlub, you know, in the world of investigative journalism. Um, he's a, a, a world-class investigative journalist with over 30 years' experience reporting. And I'm not going to list all of your accomplishments and awards because that would take up the entire hour. So I'm just going to list a few. In 1996... John was inducted into the Cronkite Alumni Hall of Fame, Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, Arizona State University. 
three times awarded the Arizona State or Arizona Press Club Verge Hill Journalist of the Year, twice awarded the Don Bowles Award for Investigative Reporting, twice nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He's a member of Investigative Reporters and Editors, Inc. He is the president of the board of directors of the Arizona Center for Investigative Journalism. He's written for the Dayton Daily News, the Phoenix New Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, just to name a few, and is the founder of Investigative Media, LLC. Did you ever work with Martin Barron? I did not. Did not work with Mr. Barron. You didn't. So you weren't on the spotlight team. No, I wasn't. Okay, well, you can leave now because we only have very, very important people in this studio. I did um, talk to Ben Bradley a couple times. Okay, when I was well, at the you Washington can stay. Post. You can stay, wow. Ben. You can stay. Okay, so very impressive. Well, thank you. I've, I've, I've really uh, had a, a, a fun time as a journalist. I, I, I knew it was my path and uh, pretty young and uh, jumped into it in college and never looked back. Well, I, I think you were sort of made for the job. Absolutely. So. I think we should start now talking about the flim flon flim flam. I can say it, Jim. Okay. Um, I, th- I made it made it sound like some kind of a culinary dish, didn't I? It does. Flim flon flam. Flim flam. <laughs> so this is a documentary that examines Toronto-based Hud Bay Minerals, uh, the heavy metal contamination and alleged human rights environmental atrocities in other parts of the world. Hud Bay is based in Flin Flon, Manitoba. Uh, where it's operated for nearly a hundred years. The film is broken down into four segments, so let's start with Flin Flon. Sure, uh, Flin Flon's uh, the core of Hud Bay Minerals operations and with um, let me back up for a second. How I got into this is because Hud Bay Minerals wants to build a massive open pit copper mine in southern Arizona in the Santa Rita Mountains on the Coronado National Forest about 35 miles southeast of Tucson and so people who are in that area who are very concerned about this operation asked me to investigate who the owner of this potential mine is and it turns out uh, the current owner is Hud Bay Minerals so that led me to do an investigation into the background of Hud Bay Minerals, which uh, most certainly ended, had me end up in Flin Flon, which when I was in Tucson, I was just like, well, what the heck is Flin Flon? <laughs> but I drove all the way up to Flin Flon two years ago and began doing a series of interviews. And the issues in Flin Flon are complex and go back for many, many years, but the, what I focused on was the fact that they operated uh, – if not the dirtiest, one of the dirtiest copper smelters in Canada for decades. And this smelter basically littered the area with heavy metals, and they were starting to find it uh, in the soil and in, in, uh, in the food. And a scientist from the University of Winnipeg, Ava Pip, went up there in the early 90s and did a major investigation and found that, yeah, there's very, very high levels of metals in the food that are being produced in gardens and, and in the area um, in and around Flin Flon. The smelter in Flin Flon was right downtown. There was no separation from the community and the smelter. It was everywhere. And it was interesting. Everywhere you went around and drove around the town, the smokestack was always there. It was Any angle you took, you always ended up seeing the smokestack. So uh, Dr. Pip 
published her studies, but uh, there was a severe backlash, and she almost was fired from the University of Winnipeg because uh, of pressure from HUD Bay and other folks that didn't like the, you know, the findings. It took another 15 years before the Manitoba uh, government reacted, and then they finally did a study, a soil study, in 2007, and indeed confirmed, yeah, there's heavy metals in the soil. And then they had a risk a health risk assessment conducted. But the state or the province didn't do the study. Instead, Hud Bay Minerals did the study and financed the study. They they actually hired an outside consultant to come in and do the study, but they financed it. And then Hud Bay's conclusion was that, that there was a you know very low likelihood of risk to the health of the folks there, even though they were finding high levels of lead in a number of children in the community. And as we, you know, is well known now that any amount of lead in the blood of children is not good. It's bad, and it can have severe developmental impacts on the child. So they finally closed the copper smelter in 2010 under pressure from the Canadian government. Uh, they either upgrade it, and it was they deemed that it was too expensive, but they've continued their mining and processing operations in the community. <clears throat> I also looked at the relationship between the uh, a First Nation, the Matthias Colomb uh, Cree Nation, and Hud Bay have clashed repeatedly over the use of uh, of the Cree's historic lands for mining without any type of consultation with the tribe about how it should be done and what kind of benefits should go to the tribe. The tribal chairman said they've received nothing in over, you know, 100 plus billion tons of ore or mined for many, many decades. Uh, HUD Bay's response to the, uh, the, the First Nations efforts to engage in conversation was to sue them. And they ended up getting a judgment against the tribe. And, um, uh, the, uh, the judge ordered the, Royal Canadian Mounted Police to enforce the judgment, prohibiting the people from gathering on their own land, essentially. So this this judgment, uh, it, this case is on appeal, and it's still pending. Uh, but I believe it's had a major chilling effect on on uh, on activists, and it, it has to be a, a major concern to the tribe because it's a lot of money is at stake. Uh, several hundred million dollars is what the company was seeking. And um, so th that's how they basically handled the situation um, when there was an effort to by uh, First Nations people to say, hey, let's let's sit down and talk. They didn't want to talk, and they go to court. And I started to see that pattern elsewhere in my travels to um, Guatemala and Peru. So the school trustees in the town of Flin Flon, uh, they weren't sure they wanted to rent out the collegiate to you to show the film uh, this June. So... Um, what do you think they were afraid of? Well, this is a company town, and and that's correct. Uh, I read about it in the in the local press from Arizona that I, I requested to to lease the only theater in town, which happens to be at the high school, and uh, the uh, board meeting was a very animated discussion from what I understand. It was a four three vote to allow me to lease the space to to show the film. And I, and I think it's a reflection of the fact that it's a company town. And in company towns, the company controls everything. And even the environmentalists and people who are opposed to the prior, you know, the, the, what's happened there were reluctant and actually refused to be filmed or to go on the record 
uh, describing what they know has happened and how it's impacted them because they have ties in the community or they have family who works for HUD Bay or they got somebody they know who's going to work there or your neighbor works for HUD Bay. So it's very, very difficult in a community that's as isolated as Flin Flon is for people to, you know, raise any kind of question or dissent. Uh, they did go through a pretty major strike last year. The United Steelworkers went on strike uh, for a number of months, and, you know, that divided the community. Some of the unions didn't back the, the United Steelworkers. They, they returned and signed the contract. So, you know, it split the community right there. So there's a, there's a lot of tension in Flin Flon, and there's a lot of concern about the future of that community. The major mine there, the 777 mine, um, is running out of war. They predict it'll be closed, the company says, probably by 2020. There's a major processing facility there, which will no longer have, uh, you know, the ward of the process that puts about 900 jobs at risk in that community. Well, you pull out 900 jobs in Flin Flon, that's the end of the town. Sure. And uh, so there's a lot of anxiety in that community about what's going to happen. And there's also, you know, a hands-off type approach towards seriously looking at or criticizing the hand that feeds you. So what was the turnout like for the the showing of your documentary in Flin Flon? Well, before we got to Flin Flon, I, uh, my, my backers and I, we, we took out a full page ad in the, in the reminder, and, which is the weekly paper there. And I, my goal was uh, twofold. Let's let everybody know we're coming and let's make sure everybody knows what this is about. So a full-page ad in the weekly paper, I think, really got the word out. We got about 35 people turn out, which I was hoping for far more, but I always hope for far more. But it was a pretty vigorous discussion, as I've had in every city. The people that come to the film really want to engage with, uh, uh, with a very, you know, I think, uh, an intelligent and passionate dialogue about the impact of mining, um, not only in Canada, but also internationally and Canada's role in that and HUD Bay is a standard bearer. HUD Bay is uh, really under the focus nationally and internationally because the lawsuits that are pending against it, which we'll get into shortly from Guatemala, but let's just say for this that for the first time a Canadian multinational corporation is being held responsible in a Canadian court for uh, things that happen at a subsidiary overseas. Mm -hmm. And this has really got the mining industry on edge because they're like, whoa, you know, in the past, if we pulled some sort of hanky-panky or an atrocity happened or an environmental catastrophe happened in an overseas area, we could kind of deal with it in the country where it happened, where usually the, the legal system is nowhere near as vigorous and there's a lot of corruption and it's much easier to escape accountability this time it's 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 these cases have survived the motion to dismiss and it's going to move forward in a trial in toronto so this is very very significant and hud bay is square in the center of this issue in canada and internationally so this is really precedent setting it's, what is happening with these law case, or the the, um, the court case? Exactly. This is a precedent-setting major case in Canada that's got the attention of human rights community, human rights activists, as well as the mining industry. So let let's start talking about Guatemala. Then Hud Bay once owned the Phoenix Nickel project in Guatemala. Um, there was allegedly 
11 women who were gang raped. Um, they killed a prominent local leader, Adolfo, um, how do you pronounce his last name? Ish, Ish. Shaman? Shaman. Shaman. Shot and paralyzed Herman Chub, uh, who was an innocent bystander uh, in El Estor. Now, um, Hud Bay is being sued for $55 million. Corey Wanless is the Toronto-based lawyer for the complainants. So can we talk a little bit about uh, Guatemala and what's happening there? Sure. Uh, after I went to Flin Flon in, the, in, uh, in August of 2014, I was able to uh, get down to Guatemala in September of 2014. And I was there for the fifth anniversary vigil of Adolfo Ich's death. And um, I interviewed his, his widow and uh, Herman Chub, young man who was shot, and also uh, the women who were uh, involved in the uh, gang rape situation. The situation in Guatemala is this. Uh, Hud Bay acquired the nickel mine there, I think it was in 2008. The gang rapes occurred in 2007. But when they acquired that mine from the previous owner, Sky Resources, they also assumed the liabilities that Sky Resources had, which was related to the allegations of the gang rapes. And what's the basic issue there is it's a conflict over land. And the Mayan Kachi had lived on this land for generations, centuries. And the Guatemalan government, following or enduring this horrible civil war that went on down there for 35 years, killed hundreds of thousands of people, mostly Mayan Kachis. And the, uh, uh, there's, a, there's ongoing disputes over who owns this land. And the Mayan community say, it's our land. We've farmed this land for multiple generations. Uh, the Guatemalan government, however, has entered into agreements with foreign mining companies to say, no, this is now the mining company's land. So hence, you have conflict. And in 2007, uh, the previous owner of this nickel mine, Sky Resources, began a series of forced evictions and burned down houses. And it was during well, one of these evictions in January 2007 where... Uh, they went up to Lote Ocho, which is a small community in the hills, a pretty good couple, three or four kilometers up a very, very steep, rough road, uh, and launched the evictions, and the women alleged that they were game-raped by the police, military, and security for the mining company. Uh, it's I went to Lote Ocho, and it's a very, very simple community. It's an agrarian-based community. Uh, the folks, you know, make the corn tortillas right there, right, there, right there in their house and cook it up on open fire. They have a very vigorous culture. They have a very tight communal life, and they want to stay. It's their land. It's their system of living, and they have no intention of leaving. And so when you see that, juxtaposed with the giant nickel mine down on the down on the lake in El Astor and the dislocation that's occurred, you can see that the conflict's going to be ongoing. And the Guatemalan government and justice system is considered one of the most corrupt in the world. The United Nations has been actively involved in trying to bring in some sort of rule of law there, which has been extremely difficult. But it was hopeless to believe that the women's case would ever see any type of uh, justice uh, in, in Guatemala. In 2009, after Hud Bay acquired the, the mine site, 
there was rumors of another round of evictions were going to happen. And the community began, you know, to demonstrate against that. And HUD Bay responded with their security forces with force. And during these clashes, um, Adolfo Each was shot in the head, apparently at close range, and hacked with machetes. You can see the wounds. We have photos of that in the movie. And, uh, you know, murdered. He was a community leader. He was a teacher. Uh, he was the center of the resistance in, in the community to to the, the mining claims. And, uh, you know, he was cold-bloodedly murdered. There's no question. He was unarmed. And during that same demonstration, uh, Herman Chub, who was not even aligned with the activists trying to maintain the land, he just happened to be down watching a soccer match. He got shot, and the bullet is still in his spine, and it paralyzed from the waist down, and he had a really pretty horrific recovery period, but he's managed to get back home, and uh, he makes his living now uh, making fishing nets. You know, from from his wheelchair, and they live in a very simple simple life. Uh, ironically, his his wife left him during the period he was recovering, and but a, another young woman has become his partner, and they live uh, you know the best they can in in in, in really tough conditions. Uh, Hud Bay Minerals is denied all involvement with it. Uh, they say that they had nothing to do with any of these events, and that they believe it'll be born. Uh, in their favor in, in the trial upcoming. I attended the board meeting last year when, uh, when Herman Chub and uh, the widow and uh, one of the rape victims appeared before the board of directors of Hud Bay Minerals and asked them to help them. And Hud Bay Minerals, then chairman or president and CEO David Garofalo, said we had nothing to do with any of this. We feel bad for you, but we didn't have anything to do with it. Herman's music is beautiful. He says in the documentary that it gives him hope. And um, it was certainly inspiring to see, but so heartbreaking. Yeah, my interview with Herman was at his, I guess, a friend's house where they where their band practices. And when you see them play and um, you see Herman's face while he's playing, you can see how this is his life uh, sustenance. That, and they're deeply religious. They're, they're very, you know, they're very God-blessing uh, people. They, they, they have deep religious beliefs. And the music and the name of the band, uh, the orchestra of, uh, in the name of Jesus... Orca echoes in the orchestra echoes in the orchestra echoes Jesus I'm sorry I forget the exact <laughs> name of, the, of his ensemble but they uh, uh, they played about a half dozen songs for me while I was there and we did the interview and uh, so one of the songs I use in the movie itself to, to do the interview with Herman Chub and in the closing credits and so it's, uh, they're very, very proud of their, uh, of their music, and I'm very happy and delighted and proud to be able to uh, share it with, uh, with, with people in the United States and Canada. Yep, and we've got that queued up to go uh, after our break, so uh, we'll, we'll do that. Um, 
We could actually do the break early if you think. Uh, what do you think, Daling? I think we could. Okay. We should. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll uh, go for our uh, break here right now. We're talking with John uh, Doherty uh, about Flynn Flan, Flynn Flam, Flim Flam, <laughs> which is a film that you can see free at the Regina Public Library tonight. So 7 p.m. 7 p.m. And we'll be right back. in the orchestra of jesus uh, that's the name of their that's the name of their band just uh, came back to you yes yeah and if you come to see the film tonight that's the music you'll hear under the credits that's correct yeah great so i'm i'm gonna be there great. i am too <laughs> 
We will do a question and answer period after the film, so we look forward to a lively discussion from the community um, at that time as well. Excellent. So, John, just before we get back into the discussion, um, I want to talk to you very briefly about your political career and your history with John McCain. <laughs> in 2010, you ran for the U.S. Senate as a Democratic candidate in Arizona against Republican John McCain. A few years prior to that, in 1989, you had uncovered Senator McCain's involvement in the notorious Keating Five scandal that prompted a, a congressional investigation that nearly ended McCain's career as a senator. So there you were, 21 years later, challenging McCain for his Senate seat. Given that experience and the political climate today in the United States, would you ever consider running for Senate again or, <laughs> or office of any kind? Wow, that's a that's an interesting question. The uh, please run. <laughs> We're begging you. I, I was um, in in 2010 when 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 I launched that short-lived political campaign. It was very interesting to me. I I um, I was really outraged by Senator McCain's reaction to the financial crisis, and he was blaming Congress. And I'm like, going, you are part of Congress." And you have contributed in great measure to allowing the deregulation that happened that led to this catastrophe that shook the foundations of the economies of the world. And here you are acting like you had nothing to do with it. Um, I ran in a, in a, uh, a four-way race in the Democratic primary, and unfortunately I didn't get a chance to actually oppose McCain in the election. Uh, we launched the campaign on May 1, uh, and I ended up with 24% of the vote in the, in the primary, but that wasn't enough to get to the, to the next round. But the thing I did learn fr from that was um, I, I, uh, I, I kind of consider myself as a uh, forerunner to the Bernie Sanders operation because <laughs> that's basically what we did. We, we just relied on emails, complete grassroots. Uh, we, we raised $100,000 in small donations from just, uh, you know, regular citizens. We had no corporate backing, nothing, you know, no, no PACs, anything like that. And what I found was that just tell the truth. Say what you believe, and people will be, uh, you know, very supportive of that. And as, uh, as, as far as a future campaign, it, it, you know, personally, I didn't have much money, and it took a lot of my money after that, and so I, I was kind of damaged financially from that experience. But um, you know, never say never. There's a there's a good candidate. The Democrats have a solid candidate running this time that that may have a chance to beat McCain in the 2016 election. We'll see. He also is facing a a a, a fairly tough primary candidate. But it's clearly time for him to go. I mean, the statement he made the other day oh. about blaming uh, directly that Barack Obama was directly responsible for the massacre in Orlando, um, you know, just is you know atrocious and. Um, it's, it's a signal that his time has come, that he, he's been there long enough. And uh, hopefully th that if he doesn't get out this time or, or doesn't get defeated this time, it will be his last term. Well, let's hope, shall we? Because if you're <laughs> echoing anything that Donald Trump says, it's time to go. <laughs> I know you're being diplomatic and not saying anything. <laughs> so, um, so I guess let's start into uh, the Constancia copper mine in Peru. Okay, well, shortly after the, the next month, I was in Flin Flon in August, Guatemala in September, and uh, Constancia open pit copper mine in Utucarco, Peru in November. 
And the reason why I went down there was that uh, we had heard from um, uh, the Mining Watch Canada folks who are doing an excellent job in, in, uh, in monitoring uh, mining operations in Canada and internationally that the folks in Uchukarko were uh, raising demonstrations and were demanding a meeting with HUD Bay to discuss the contract that they had signed a couple years earlier, believing that the, with the terms in the contract were not being fulfilled. There had been some demonstrations and some arrests, and that the, the community had actually seized the open pit, and that there were hundreds of people in the open pit uh, preventing work. So I flew down to, uh, to Lima, hopped on a plane to Cusco, got in a cab with a, with a, a young lady who was extremely helpful on this trip, Stephanie Boyd, who's a Canadian, who's done tremendous work on mining and other issues. And we drove to Uchucarco and met the folks, and lo and behold, yeah, there was major, um, major upheaval going on in the community. Went up to the open pit and interviewed people there. And while I was there, I was lucky enough, or sometimes it's not luck. As a journalist, it, uh, I, I always say you have to go. You can't phone in the story. You can't just call in somebody and ask them what's happened. You need to be there. Mm -hmm. And by being there, some of the community activists provided me some footage that is opening in my film of uh, the demonstrations that they had where the local community members went down the road. They were marching, and the Pol Peruvian National Police blocked the road. And the women sat down on the ground in uh, front of the police, and uh, the, the police proceeded to start to beat them and, and shoot tear gas and kick them, and, and it's on the video. So, uh, and then they, the people fled. They'd never been tear gassed before. They didn't really know what tear gas was, and then the tear gas canisters caused a fire and what have you. But, um, you know, that was the effort that people in Peru had to do to try to get Hud Bay to come to the negotiating table. You know, Hud Bay was basically saying, no, we're not going to do it. The community says, all right, we're going to demonstrate. They get beat by the Peruvian National Police, who were wearing Hud Bay raincoats. And it seems like uh, raising questions of whether Hud Bay has a contract with the Peruvian National Police to do their uh, enforcement. So, you know, in Peru, this is a real, real problem if the, if the national police are under contract to the local mining companies that therefore then prevents local communities from staging peaceful protests and demonstrations to try to bring about, uh, you know, addressing their grievances. You know, it's a First Amendment right in the U.S., peaceful assembly. And that's what they were doing, and the, and the reaction was violence, brought on by the police, sponsored by HUD Bay. Uh, needless to say, the community is deeply divided, as mining companies typically do when they go into third world countries. There's people who are going to get the money, and there's going to be people whose livelihood and lives are going to be destroyed. And it, that's how the company splits the community. And in Uchukarko, it was an agricultural community for 1,500 years. That's what the leader said. Uh, you know, dairy and cheese and, you know, 12,000 feet. I guess that's... Um, 4,000 meters, it's way up in the Andes, uh, and they had a sustainable economy that had worked for a long, long time. Now that whole way of life has been turned upside down, and, and their water supplies are seriously jeopardized by this massive open pit copper mine. And uh, the, the tensions still remain. They, they entered into some negotiations, and those things are still ongoing. Meanwhile, HUD Bay is now seeking a second agreement to build a second pit 
a satellite pit to the Constantia pit, and they need to sign contracts with local community leaders. That's going to be a very interesting uh, scene to watch unfold how that how that occurs. And ironically, you know, it's the Uchukarko community uh, and the Constantia pit and that huge operation there that is kind of sealing the fate of Flin Flon in Manitoba. So Flin Flon has been there for a long time and at Hood Bay's mercy, really, and benefit and made a lot of money and supported a community for multiple generations. That's coming to an end while Constantia in Peru is starting to take off having serious human rights and environmental impacts there. So part of my goal in this, with this tour is to start to build bridges between communities in Flin Flon and El Astor, Guatemala, and Uchucarco, Peru, and Tucson, Arizona, because we, we really are facing the same uh, fallout from a mining company, but at different stages of the life of the mining company. And it's important for each community to share information about what they have experienced. Because I believe that, you know, the only way we're going to ever develop a sustainable mining culture is not the greenwashing that's occurring now where they're going, they put out in their community and social responsibility reports, oh, we do this, X, Y, Z, you know, we're great here, blah, blah, blah. No. There, there needs to be far more reaching sustainability, such as what happens to Flin Flon? What happens to the people who've built their lives and community there for multiple generations? If Hud Bay locks the gates, do they have a, the right just to leave and leave that community hanging? You know, I think that needs to be brought into question about do mining companies need to build, be building a fund to help these communities transition and bring about a new economic engine so they can continue to exist and not just dry up and blow away? The same thing down in Uchucarco, Peru. You know, if you're going to divide the community and destroy its agrarian base, what are you going to do to replace it? A 22-year life mine versus 1,500 years of sustainable society and economy and customs and social structures gets blown away. So those are costs that are not brought onto the table. And the environmental devastation that occurs, particularly from open pit mining, stays forever. It never goes away. How do we mitigate that? You know, some, some areas, California, for example, if you want to build an open pit, you got to backfill it, you know? And mining companies like, well, wait a minute, you know? I mean, that costs us money to put that stuff back in. Well, yeah, it does cost you money to put it back in. Mm -hmm. But which, do you have a right just to leave it dumped all over, the, all over the land where the environmental impacts go on forever and you walk off with your profits and go on to the next target? These are all costs of production, and they all should be incorporated in the cost of the product. Then we're really talking about a free market. We're not talking about a free market right now. The market's completely contrived and controlled because the externalities created by the mining companies are shoved off onto the communities, onto you and me, onto the taxpayers, onto our children, onto the environment, while the profits and the internalization gets scooped up by the shareholders and then the, the managers of the company make obscene amount of money. So this is way, way out of balance. And from this exercise that I've been doing by going to these different countries, it's become clear to me that the sustainable mining concept has to be broadened much, much greater. To a, and it has to be done internationally, too. You can't have a hole in this system. You know, this is a worldwide issue, and it needs to be addressed at a worldwide level. And it 
can be done. That's the it, thing. It can be done. We have a good example of that mining coal down in southern Saskatchewan. The the people used to dig up, you know, take the overburden off, get at the coal, and just leave everything. And if you drive through there, you can see that. But the mining they're doing now, they have to go back, they have to fill it, they have to plant it, and uh, they boast that the land is better when they leave it than what it was when they arrived. Wow, that, that's that's a step forward, and that's how we need to handle uh, in a, in a planet with where we have nine billion people and huge demands on resources. There has to be much more accountability of how the resources are created and 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 sold. Yeah, and it definitely can be done. So that then takes us to Arizona. Arizona, uh, yes, the ongoing fight in Arizona is very very important because. The area that the mining company picked couldn't have been worse. And let me stop for a second. Arizona is the leading copper-producing state in the United States. We know copper. I mean, the the state was built on copper. We have massive open-pit copper mines, and the copper has created a lot of wealth, and the copper mines have created serious environmental damage, uh, pollution of the groundwater, uh, destruction of massive areas of forests and diversions of water systems. So, you know, we're not naive to the impacts of copper mining. And HUD Bay's trying to come down here and say, well, we're going to build a 21st century mine. Well, what's the difference? The, tw- the difference is a 21st century mine can destroy more land faster than a 20th century mine can. That's the difference because they basically dig a big hole process out less than one half of one percent of the ore is copper and dump the rest so i mean this is a pretty massive impact now the santa rita mountains sit at the crossroad of some major deserts and mountain ranges from north and south and they also serve as a crucial wildlife corridor linking the uh, the southern united states into mexico and we've had instances of very very important mammals uh... returning in the united states from mexico through the santa rita mountains including the only known wild jaguar in the u.s. right now lives within a half mile of where they want to build the pit uh... so it's clear that the santa rita mountains are really really uh, has a has a fantastic ecosystem that's still intact enough to support a large mammal like a jaguar and there's ocelot another endangered species they're also there there's 12 endangered species that will be directly impacted by this mine um, and also the mine sits up high in the santa rita mountains will impact the watershed for that supplies about 20 percent of the drinking water for for uh, the tucson metropolitan area other mining companies have known about this copper reserve up there in the Santa Rita's for decades, and there's been several attempts at trying to develop it. None of them succeeded, and the opposition in Arizona is determined to make sure this doesn't succeed. HUD Bay purchased this uh, uh, mine site when they acquired a Vancouver junior mining company, Augusta Resource, in 2014 for $550 million cash. I mean, a stock deal, $550 million in stock. And uh, I think Augusta largely sold them a bill of goods, which isn't unusual in the junior mining world. There's a lot of, you know, you better check twice before you sign the dotted line. We're right now facing some very crucial permitting decisions in Arizona. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, it may sound a little weird, but they're the ones who are in charge of uh, issuing what's called a Section 404 Clean Water Act permit. 
And what that is in the Clean Water Act, Section 404, requires if you destroy wetlands of the United States, you have to fully mitigate for that damage. And the argument that the environmentalists believe is is that there's no way you can mitigate the damage that they're going to do to the wetlands in this area. Therefore, they shouldn't get the permit. HUD Bay says, no, we can come up with some other plans to mitigate the damage, and we've provided those to the Army Corps. And so now there's a balancing act. Uh, and, you know, this permit could be decided any time. I'm doing my tour through July 15th. It could happen before I'm done. You know, if it doesn't happen by mid-July, uh, the the general line of thinking is that the Army Corps will not make a decision during the election presidential election campaign and that it will get kicked into next year, which then raises the stakes of the presidential election campaign you know, as far as the Santa Rita Mountains are concerned in the future there, clearly a Trump administration would eviscerate the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and be a disaster for environmental protections in the United States, as well as human rights issues. I mean, there's no question that the, the Trump uh, philosophy and political positions that he is taking and is, is alienating a lot of people at a tremendously rapid rate. Uh, it's interesting, he's holding a fundraiser this week in Barry Goldwater's old home or some, some sort of facility associated with Barry Goldwater. And I'm like going, well, great. Because if you remember when Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964, he got trounced. And let's hope that's a forerunner for what's going to happen to Donald Trump. <laughs> Foreshadowing. I like it. Um, so... How do you respond to those who say that the film is unbiased or unbalanced or an unfair portrayal, given that the documentary was, documentary was funded by Farmers Investment Company, an Arizona-based um, firm that publicly opposes Hud Bay's proposed Rosemont Mine in Arizona? Oh, I've been asked that repeatedly, and when sure. I entered into the agreement with uh, with FICO to do uh, uh, investigative reporting, it was that you give me the money, I'll do my job, and I'll write what I find, and then you'll see it when I'm done. And that's what we've done. Um, secondly, Hood Bay Minerals, like most major Canadian corporations, has controlled the media in Canada to a large degree and has only told their side of the story or the story that they want told, which is basically what's the return on investment, how much is our profit, what's our dividends. You look at the, at the Canadian business press, that's what they focus on. There's been very little coverage about the issues in Guatemala, hardly any, if any, about what's going on in Peru, and very little in Arizona. Uh, the New York Times wrote a front-page story in April about the about the Guatemala lawsuits, uh, that kind of rattled cages in Canada, and the Toronto Star wrote a story a couple weeks ago about the issue with the jaguar in the uh, Santa Rita Mountains. So that was encouraging to see, uh, you know, major media starting to take a look at the at the situation. But you know, there's a dearth of information about the side of, but not side, about the real impacts that mining companies have on communities. It's it's basically ignored by the business press, and who else is going to cover what mining companies are doing? It's the business press. The business press is doing an abysmal job in Canada and the United States covering major corporations. They focus too much on the press releases that the companies put out and don't spend anywhere enough time 
going and doing the legwork and on-the-ground work and doing the nitty-gritty and going and seeing what they actually are doing and interviewing people who are impacted by it. The reason why, it takes time and it takes money neither of which a lot of newspapers have in their defense. Having worked in the newspaper industry for 22 years, I know how bad it is. I find it very ironic that I would love to have been able to do this documentary under the banner of a newspaper or a mainstream uh, TV station or radio uh, outlet or anything like that. Certainly. Find me one that's going to pay me to go to Guatemala, Peru, and um, uh, Flin Flon, Manitoba. They don't exist. Uh, one of my friends who's a reporter in, uh, in Tucson at the Daily Star, he, he would love to have done what I did, but the Daily Star doesn't have the money or time to allow him to do it. So I have to fill a niche in this new age of journalism, and what it comes down to is the, my individual ethics, and I feel the story that I present is fair, I feel it's accurate. I feel it presents a voice that hasn't been heard. And Hud Bay was given every opportunity to respond and participate in this. And Hud Bay's views are presented throughout the documentary. So I, I, I think it's a fair question, and I, and I have no uh, issue with it at all. And um, I'm proud of the, of the work that I've done with it. I think it's a major contribution to uh, understanding what's going on. So the, the fact that... Uh you had an organization that was willing to back you really speaks well of them that uh, they see the importance of what you're doing there and they're willing to how much do you mind uh, telling us how much they they've paid for the project do you have any idea well i mean i think this project cost about fifty thousand dollars based on my my time travel time uh... the equipment that i bought you know i did this whole thing basically I shot the video, I took the stills, I did the audio, I put the editing on the computer and produced and edited the film. Mm -hmm. um, I used some other video and, and stills in the video, in the documentary itself. But um, what it shows you, you can do a pretty major production now without a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And really, I mean, I, I was using Google, how do I do this? On Final Cut Pro throughout the whole thing because <laughs> right. I was learning as I was going. Right, yeah. And I would like to say the 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 backers, uh, Farmer Investment Company, it's a it's a family who operate, in my opinion, in the best tradition of what we once had in the United States of family-owned newspapers that were the backbone of American journalism, and they've all mostly been taken over mm -hmm. by by chains. Um, it's, it's unfortunate. It's been a disaster. Since I've been in the in newspaper industry, it's just been a huge consolidation and layoffs of reporters. That's been the result. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just going to say, like, $50,000 is not a lot of money. No. That's, that's no. incredible that you've been able to do a, a film like this for a, basically a pittance. Yeah, it, it, it is It is pretty interesting that you can do this. But I, I, I ran it the same way as I did my political campaign, my brief political campaign, is that <laughs> you just start doing it mm -hmm. and, and, and worry about the money as, as time goes on. And, you know, maybe I should have worried about the money a little bit more at the beginning of my political effort uh, or started six months earlier. I might have had a chance to – I might have won the Democratic primary if I started earlier. And I think Bernie Sanders might have won the Democratic Party if he started earlier. He he started a little too late and couldn't get his name down in the southern states where they would be, you know, be more comfortable with him. 
uh, because I think a lot of what he has to say was really more in line with what their needs are and their desires are, but they just didn't know who he was. Yeah, just hearing about your dedication here, I'm, I'm just curious, and I'm going to ask you another question. Are you a religious person? No, I'm, this I'm, sounds like a kind of a religious thing that you're doing. I'm a spiritual person, but I'm, I don't belong to any formal formal religion. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that uh, we are each here to follow our spiritual path. And I feel very lucky that my path of uh, what I do for work coincides with what I believe is my spiritual path. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've, uh, I, I, I do this with great joy. So speaking of paths. Yes. What is on the horizon next for you? There's Nevson Mining's Eritrean operations in BC that have filed human rights complaints at Chevron Corporation for environmental contamination. Are you pursuing any other um, organizations like this, or are you going to focus on something else, or, or what's what's next for you? Well, what I'd like to do is a uh, holiday. <laughs> no, no, I'm on holiday while I'm traveling right now. I'm traveling with three dogs, by the way. Oh, are you? Busy. You should have brought them in. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> uh, we'd be playing fetch the whole time. Oh, my, nothing my, wrong my, with that. My next project is to really focus on uh, the General Mining Act of 1872 and mining acts that were passed in uh, the industrialized countries, including Canada and in Western Europe, because the mining acts are what set up the whole foundation for international mining and allow for the exploitation of the environment and human rights abuses basically without any kind of check. So uh, that's what I'm, I really like to do is uh, look at the evolution of the mining laws, which came about after the Civil War, U.S. Civil War, and the Industrial Revolution started to take hold. The big industrial families were able to convince the political leaders of industrialized countries or countries that want to become industrialized that hey you know the key to your wealth is to let us get to these minerals and don't hold us back and by and large that's how the laws were created and that's where they still remain 150 years later well time for a change mm -hmm. tis so tonight yes library at the library at seven o'clock Seven o'clock, and I'll uh, have a brief introduction, and then we'll do the mi movie. It's 51 minutes, and then I'll answer questions until they make us leave. Okay, could be a long night. <laughs> I hope so. Because <laughs> we have more questions for you, but I think we're out of time. Well, John, I'd really, really like to thank you for uh, being here. It's been it's been great, and I, I realize in talking to you that we've kind of just scratched the surface, and... Uh, this uh, hopefully this film will, will have far-reaching effects on uh, on our world because it, it affects everyone. Well, thank you very much. It's been fantastic to have this opportunity, and I really appreciate it. As we close this week's Human Rights Radio and CJTR Community Radio, we hope you've enjoyed listening to and have learned something new about human rights for all people. If you have any questions about today's show or other human rights questions, email us at humanrightsradio at cjtr.ca. Past shows can be accessed by visiting humanrightsradio.podbean.com. Pioneering human rights campaigner Peter Benenson said, Only when the last prisoner of conscience has been freed, the last torture chamber has been closed. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a reality for the world's people. Will our work be done? <laughs>